0: You made the point, looking at 2 Peter 1 and 2, that 2 Peter is interesting because here you clearly have Peter at the end of his life, in his final spiritual maturity. And it's rather like reading 2 Timothy 3 and 4, that there you see Paul in his final spiritual maturity, and here we see Peter. And I, I think it's significant <clears throat> where a, a man gets at the end of his uh, the end of his spiritual journey and peter was obviously a, a wonderful example of a believer uh, maybe one of the greatest really um that's recorded in biblical history anyway and we've got his letter here his his final words his final maturity and i want to focus particularly really on his very very last words really from verse um 11 really onwards he's talked about the inevitability of judgment to come and how there is going to be judgment both for those within the ecclesia who've turned away and for the unbelieving world and so he emphasizes that verse 11 seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved seeing that this whole structure of society in which we live is to come to an end what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy living And godliness. In other words, knowing that this whole world system in which we live is limited, that it's time limited, and one day the time will end. And even if that time is after we have fallen asleep in the Lord, all the same, we are living now as people who shall appear before the day of judgment. And the very knowledge of that, the very belief of that basic principle that Jesus is coming, this of itself requires of us, as he puts it, all holy living and godliness. This way of life that should be lived knowing that we are living under judgment. What manner of persons ought we to be? And it's really like with Jonah that he didn't actually tell the Ninevites to repent. He told them that judgment was coming. And that was itself an imperative for them to repent. Right back in Mosaic uh, ritual, Leviticus 9 verse 4, when there was a feast day in which Yahweh was going to appear, they were, the people were to prepare themselves against that day by atonement, by sacrifice etc the fact that the Lord is coming we should prepare ourselves against that day and Peter's whole point is and there should be a sense of urgency in doing so and he goes on to say in verse 14 Seeing then that you look for these things, give diligence that you may be found of him in peace, that is, peace with him, without spot and blameless in his sight. Now, I don't think he's saying here so much, look, get a grip on yourselves, your morality, your thinking, uh, make yourselves, therefore, uh, pure and without spot and blameless, because we cannot be pure and without spot and blameless by our own effort. We don't have... The steel in our will to do that. And even if from now on we were to somehow resolve that I will be perfect. Well the fact is we have spotted our garments many times already. So the point I think he's saying is look seeing that Jesus is coming. Refocus yourself on the most basic belief and aspect of the gospel. That because you are in him. You see he says that you may be found of him or may be found in him. In peace, without spot and blameless. Keep reminding yourself that because I am in Christ, I therefore am seen in his sight. And that is significant that the RV adds that. that. Uh, It's not in the AV. Uh, I am in his eyes, and his eyes, his opinion is the only opinion worth anything. I am in his eyes, without spot and blameless. Now, this is very much the language that is used elsewhere in the New Testament about the bride prepared for her her husband, without spot and blameless. But that is only in his sight. And this is the crucial thing. You've got it at the end of Jude in those very beautiful words, that we shall be presented faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. That's Jude um, 24. The point is, he is able to do that. And he is able to present you or to set you faultless before the presence of his glory without blemish, the RV says, in exceeding joy. So he is able, he is able to present you to himself. Before the presence of his glory, and his glory is ultimately his moral glory. Remember how when Moses wanted to see God's glory, he had the declaration of God's name. I am Yahweh, a God full of grace, of compassion, uh, of justice, judging sin, etc. So then the glory of God and the glory of Jesus is their moral perfection. And as we stand before the presence of that glory, in the personal presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, who are we to kind of feel part of the scene? We with all our spots and blemishes and failures. The only way that we can stand there without spot and blemish is that we are presented by him to himself. That's what Jude 24 is saying in that way. And, of course, we are in that position by status now, in that we are baptized into Jesus. I mean, who is the spotless one? Who is the blameless one? Who is, you know, the Lamb of God without sin? The the Lamb that did not have any spot or blemish. Those very words are used about the Lord Jesus. We are only going to be in His eyes without spot and blemish because we are in Him. And we are already in Him. So when Peter says here in in 2 Peter 3.14 Then be diligent that you may indeed be found in him in peace Without spot and blameless in his eyes, in his sight Then he's saying, look, keep on deepening your faith In the fact that you really are in Christ And that he looks at you as if you are him And God looks at us as if we are him This is the whole point of of Paul's teaching about justification in Romans that we are declared right because we are in Christ. We stand there in the witness box, uh, in the, uh, not the witness box, but uh, the cage, as it were, um, and we have all our sins testifying against us. And yet the judge of all the earth says, You are right. You are declared right. You are justified. Now, how can that be? It's not that he's turning a blind eye. It's not that he's twisting the course of justice. It's not that he's being willfully naive about us. The point is that he sees us as in Christ. And therefore, with absolute legitimacy, he can say, you are not just let off. You don't just scrape through by the skin of your teeth. You are declared right. And so, as I say, when we're told here to to make sure to be diligent... That we will be found in him in peace, in peace with him, without spot and blemish. He's meaning that we should ensure that this is indeed how we feel about ourselves. That right now, today, that we are at peace with him. That is the the crucial point. Now, he goes on to say in verse 12, having talked about how we should uh, live in practice, in response really to that grace, if we're counted uh, as Christ, uh, we're counted as if we're without sin, well we should try to live out in practice what we are by status. And he says in all holy way of living and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God. Now both the AV and the RV margin make the point that this could be translated, uh, the AV margin, hasting the coming of the day of God, or the, uh, the RV margin that says uh, similarly, hastening the coming of the, uh, the day of God. The implication is that the coming of the day of the Lord is not set in stone in the sense of a calendar date, but that it depends upon the spirituality of the last generation. Now, whoever that last generation is, they have a huge responsibility in order to hasten the coming of the day. Now, we are to live, I think, although it's not specifically stated, I think we are supposed to infer from the teaching of Jesus and of Paul that the Christian is to live as if we expect the return of Christ to be imminent that's quite independent of what we might call signs of the times of how the world geopolitical situation is fitting in with our perception of Bible prophecy that's one thing but that's totally different to what I'm saying that Paul and Jesus both spoke as if the second coming would be in that generation and I interpret that as meaning that really Christians should live as if we believe the law to be coming imminently So then, we are to assume that we are the last generation, and therefore our spiritual position as a community, this is what will hasten, bring closer the coming of the Lord. So when we pray, your kingdom come, I understand that to be a request, may it come sooner, but like with all prayer, you have to, in practice, do something about it, yes, may that be the case. But we have to focus on our own uh, holy living, as he says, in godliness, which will hasten the coming of the day of God. This idea that God's purpose is to some degree open-ended is very, I think, upsetting for some. And I, I found it quite disconcerting when I first... Uh, really uh, engaged with this idea, I suppose as a, a teenager, probably, maybe 19, something like that. I, I first came across this idea and, you know, I found it quite disconcerting. And yet, the words of Scripture are clear. And the, the more you start to think about this and the more you just think through things like Jonah and the Ninevites, you know, in 40 days you will be destroyed. There was no rider to that unless you repent. That was it, and yet they were not, because they repented, because of their holy living and godliness, to put it in Peter's terms. And likewise, the whole idea of the uh, the kingdom coming, and the coming of the Lord, it being in the first century, well, I'm sure it could have been, but Israel would not, and the brotherhood of believers would not, and so it didn't happen. There were these deferments in God's purpose. And so, on one hand, the day of Christ's coming can be hastened by us, but then he seems to purposefully juxtapose that with the idea in verse 15, that account that the patience of our Lord is salvation. I take that to mean that he's being very patient, uh, as Peter has uh, earlier said, as he was in the days of Noah that God patiently waited. I mean, let's face it, Jesus wants to come back. He loves us. He's not killing time up there looking at his watch or out the window kind of thing. He loves us passionately and is involved with us and is so saddened by the ever-increasing degree of sin and rebellion against him and hatred towards God which there is on this earth just as God was grieved by the position of the Gentile world really the unbelieving world at the time of Noah uh, and at other times the iniquity of the Amorites filled up in God's sight until he cast them out of Canaan etc. and that is what he is feeling about this world so why does he delay? because he loves us because, let's face it, if the Lord had come back a hundred years ago, none of us would be here, almost. Um, you know, he's, he saw us, and so he's caught in a bind, If uh, you know, in, in human terms, of course, he isn't ultimately, but he wants to save us. He sees all possible futures, and he sees that if he delays that second coming of Jesus, more will come. He also, I think, is giving the Church of the Last Days and Israel... The opportunity for repentance. And he keeps waiting, waiting, waiting. Now, the Lord does delay. When the uh, the servants in the parable say, my Lord delays his coming. And uh, start to beat the fellow servant. Well, actually the Lord did delay his coming. Because the same word is used there just a few verses earlier. When we read that the bridegroom in the other parable, the bridegroom tarried, the bridegroom delayed, and then next parable, they start to say "Huh, my lord delays his coming, yes he does so there is a delay and that delay is picked up here by Peter when he talks about the, uh, the long suffering, the patience of our lord is actually our salvation so there is a delay and yet on the other hand we can hasten the coming Now, of course, there must be, if you like, some kind of ultimate algorithm that God is working towards. But the point is, we can bring forward the day from when it would otherwise have been. And how can we do that? Well, when the harvest is ripe, to use another metaphor, then the sickle is put in. When the final generation have reached, as a community, the point of spirituality... That the Lord is looking for. Then the, the sickle is put in. Another factor I think. Is that Jesus said the gospel. Must go to all the world. And then shall the end come. And we as the uh, community of true believers. Have simply not achieved that. For one reason or another. But then the internet came along. And I, I really feel that that has enabled us. To take the gospel into all the world. And we are doing so. There's also been another phenomenal uh, phenomenon, we, we, we could say, that, that has uh, arisen in the last 50 years, and that is people from all over the world have started travelling. And now, if you stand on a street corner in a city like Moscow, or London, or here in Riga even, or anywhere, any big city, uh, and you start, let's say you're standing there handing out flyers, handing out tracts about the Lord. The people who are taking those who are walking past you. They are from all over the world. From little tribes in South America, Africa, Asia, all over the place. People are getting the gospel. That is starting to be fulfilled. And I think the more we put our weight behind that kind of outreach, the quicker the day of the Lord will come. And I can say, having spent, you know, 25 years trying to do just that, that insofar as you keep that as your focus, God will bless you in doing that. I don't mean he makes you rich or all that kind of stuff, or gives you a car or something in a sort of primitive Pentecostal way. I'm talking about in in spiritual terms. You will feel him with you, as He said, I am with you to the end of the world, when he just said, take the gospel to the end of the world. And yet he will be with us to the end. In doing that work. <clears throat> and the other factor is the repentance of Israel. That the Lord will come to those who have turned from transgression in Jacob. We, we read in Isaiah. And there's all sorts of indications that there will be at least some repentance in Israel before the Lord comes. Now <clears throat> the the movement of met, what are called Messianic Jews. I I don't know what to make of, because a lot of them believe really wrong ideas about Jesus. Uh, they're strongly Trinitarian, most of them. But all the same, there would appear to be a, uh, a movement there. And I, I think that that is significant. When there is fruit on the fig tree, that is the final sign that this is the last generation. And that fruit on the fig tree, I suggest, in in line with biblical prophecy and biblical use of the metaphor... That fruit is spiritual fruit within Israel and particularly the fruit of accepting the Lord Jesus as God's Son and their Messiah. Now again, it seems that that is starting. So, I don't think that uh, it's unreasonable to think that we actually are the last generation, but whether we are or not is, is in a sense irrelevant because we are to live as if we are. And insofar as those things happen the spiritual fruit amongst the body of believers and the uh, repentance of Israel, the spreading of the gospel to all the world then we are hastening the coming of the Lord and yet on the other hand I see maybe it's just my limited view from my little corner of the body of believers but I see In a sense, a lack of spirituality, a a focus on the external, a terrible argument uh, between believers, disillusion, materialism particularly. And I don't see a lot of what I would call true spirituality, what he calls here holy living and godliness. I'm afraid I don't see that. I'm sorry to say that. I'm not the judge of all the earth, of course, but that's my sense. And I direct that comment to, to myself. So then, we have here a sober appeal, really, for for spirituality. And, as I say, in a sense there is a delay. And we have to realize that, that we are living in a period of delay. That you and I are really living in a generation that has been saved by absolute grace. Because really the Lord should have come before now. But he hasn't. Uh, really, for our sakes, and we should we should bear that in mind and so he he warns them really, in his very last words, I think to to not slip away, and time and again he 's writing really in a model context he 's appealing for people uh, to live in a model way, and he says <clears throat> there in uh, Well, verse 17, he appeals to us not to be led away with the error of the wicked and a fall from your own steadfastness. It's if he understood that this kind of thing, this falling away in moral terms, was likely to happen. And, of course, his context is saying that if that happens, then you won't be hastening the coming of the day of the Lord. God is going to have to delay it because he's just patient and hopeful for your repentance, And in that context he he warns verse 16 about those that are ignorant and unsteadfast. They rest the scriptures. Now I don't think that that particularly refers to false theology. He's talking about the unsteadfast the RV. The implication is the immoral because he says don't fall from your own steadfastness verse 17. It's the unsteadfast those who want to go the, the easy way of uh, an uncommitted life to Jesus an unspiritual life they rest the scriptures to their own destruction and he urges us as the last generation and of course Peter is writing as if his generation is the last and therefore as I say we should live as if we are the last generation that's why he does that and we are also in that sense to perceive ourselves as the last generation I think what he's saying is that there will be a tendency not to walk away from Jesus in so many words, not to adopt atheism, not to throw the Bible in the basket but instead to rest it, to basically justify whatever lifestyle we want, and believe me that is going on all the time, the so called gay Christian movement so many of these movements are taking the Bible looking at the what for them are the inconvenient truths resting them, trying to radically reinterpret everything to just justify how they want to see things and that is exactly what Peter is warning about here and so he concludes really by focusing us upon upon Jesus all the time he's doing this it's a very Christ centered message and he, he warns them about being carried away with the error of the wicked but interestingly that same word is for carried away is in Galatians 2 verse 13, where Peter is described as having been carried away with the argument that you shouldn't break bread with uncircumcised Gentiles. And Paul says that Peter was carried away by that hypocrisy. And so when Peter says here, beware lest you also, lest you also, are carried away with the error of the wicked. What's the import of the word also? I think as always, as we brought out in our earlier studies on the letters of Peter, he's alluding to his own failure. He himself was led away, carried away, same word, Galatians 2.13, with church politics, with hypocrisy, with not breaking bread with this one or that one, because other brethren had come and said you mustn't break bread with them. And in that sense, you could say that this was almost his second denial of the Lord of all grace. And he realizes that. And I, I think when he says, beware lest you also uh, are carried away with the error of the lawless. That word wicked, it's really the word lawless. Uh, he, he's sort of alluding to that. He's saying, you know, those people who were so into keeping the law, who came down and said, unless you keep the law... Uh, you know you can't be broken bread with and peter got carried away with that he's actually i think making a bit of a, a bit of a snook at that he's saying well actually they were the lawless those legalists were actually the lawless ones and so it's odd that that should be almost his final shot that he's saying don't be carried away from grace don't get caught up in church politics like i did for a bit focus on personal spirituality and on hastening the coming of the day of God.